Whenever we live in a country where we don't have to taste war on our own home front, it's important to remember that we are safe because the military is out there fighting for us and taking the fight to the enemy. And it's just important to remember that freedom is not free and we should never take it for granted. Her name is Jane Horton, and her husband, Christopher Horton, is an American hero killed in the war in Afghanistan. Welcome to First Person. I'm Wayne Shepard. You'll meet this remarkable woman and hear about her mission when we begin the conversation in just a moment. Our website, firstpersoninterview.com, is a resource which you can use to follow up on any interview you hear on this program, including today's. We always provide links that give you ways to learn more about the topics we cover. Just visit firstpersoninterview.com. The upcoming schedule is also found online. Next week, we'll take you to the country of Moldova. Visit the website, firstpersoninterview.com. But today, the conversation turns to what far too many American families are coping with, the death of a loved one during a time of war. Christopher Horton was killed during a mission in Afghanistan on his first tour of duty. Highly trained and skilled, Chris was doing what he felt called to do in behalf of his country. But his death left a void in the life of his young bride, Jane. Jane and I talked on the phone about their life together and now, sadly, their life apart. Well, Jane, first of all, as I did previously, my condolences to you. Your husband died in service to all of us, and we're so thankful for him and and all those who have fought uh, these wars on our behalf. Thank you very much, Blaine, and thank you for having me. Yeah, now let's talk about your life uh, before Chris's death. How long did you two know each other, and when were you married? We met, actually, in New York City working for the mayor, and we also went to the same college together. And we were friends for several years. We kind of kept up through politics, and we started talking during the 2008 presidential election. And um, I remember calling him and asking him who he thought would win the primary, Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama. And two months later, we were engaged. It was very fast, though. We definitely knew that, um, that each other was the one. And so we had known each other a couple years before we got engaged, and then we got married a year later. Okay. Now, Chris served in the Oklahoma National Guard, correct? Yes. So was that a reality when you two met, or did that come later? It was definitely a reality when we started dating. He had joined the Oklahoma National Guard three months prior. And he was just the kind of guy that wanted to serve his country and do his duty to his nation. And he wanted to join to be an Army sniper. So I knew it was something that he wanted to do. I knew it came with the package of Chris, and I was very proud of him for wanting to serve. Hmm. So you didn't hold back at all? No. Yeah. So his specialty was as a sniper? Yep. Now, it was his first deployment, right, to Afghanistan? How long did he serve there? He was in Afghanistan for three months before he was killed. All right. And take me to that day when you got that terrible news. I was at home. It was September 9, 2011. And I had gone to school that morning, gone to college classes, and I went to Walmart to get some goods for his birthday package. His birthday was October 1st, and packages took a couple weeks to get there, so I wanted to get started on his package. And I had a military wife come over who knew how to make these little uh, cakes that you put in a jar, and they make it over to Afghanistan fresh. And she came over, and we were making the cakes, and I got a knock at the door. And I remember making a joke to her and saying how we military wives love knocks at the door. Mm. And I went and looked, and there were two uniformed officers there to tell me that Chris had been killed. Oh, boy. 
unimaginable to most of us, Jane. It's been, what, close to three years, hasn't it? Yeah, a little over three years. And I, I saw a comment you made recently that you're just now beginning to feel that maybe maybe life has something more for you. you it's, been a, it's been a tough go. It's been very rough. I know, you know, I knew from the moment that Chris had been killed that God had a great plan for my life and that it wasn't about me anymore, that it was up to me to carry the torch that Chris left behind uh, to fight for this nation and to do everything I could for those that have given everything for me. But it's finally um, taken three years for me to realize that the best of my life is yet to come instead of behind me, which is really kind of a painful thing to say and to realize, even though it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. How has the Lord met you during this time, Jane? It's been an interesting road, but I've never, I've never really questioned God on it. You know, there's a lot of questions that I feel like we'll never get the answers till we get to heaven. And how could I be mad at a God that has taken Chris into his arms and taken him into heaven? Chris is the happiest that he's ever been. But I will tell you that God has um, really given me purpose and a platform throughout this all, and I've really held on to the promise that he's given me that God works everything out for the good for those who love him. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk more about the opportunities you've had. Uh, First of all, I'm holding the bracelet that honors Chris and his memory, Christopher Horton. Uh, it says that he was killed in action, 9 September 2011 in Afghanistan. Uh, this bracelet has quite a story, doesn't it? Absolutely. There's been many uh, people that have worn it. I give it out to celebrities and politicians alike. And um, it's a military tradition that goes back to Vietnam. People used to wear them in honor of uh, missing in action, prisoners of war, and now killed in action. And when Chris died, I made a thousand of them, and I passed them out to people. And as I started getting more involved in politics and going to different events, I started to hand them to more influential people. And the reason why is, for example, Governor Romney wore Chris's bracelet on the campaign trail and told Chris's and I's story on the campaign trail. And... When people see that bracelet on them, they're not, most of the time they're not going to be able to read it. They're not going to know that it's the bracelet of Specialist Christopher Horton. Let alone if they could read that, they're not going to know who he is, but they're going to know that it's the bracelet of a fallen service member. And even when Saturday Night Live spoofed the debate, they had Romney wearing a KIA bracelet, hmm. which I thought was awesome. Yeah. Well, it's amazing uh, how God has raised you up to be really kind of a spokesperson for um, families who are going through this kind of experience. And how did those opportunities come about? Is, is this something you sought? It's not really something I thought. But as time went on, I really realized the platform that God has given me and the ability to make change and influence uh, even our nation's most influential decision makers. And about a year after Chris was killed, I really felt in my heart that I had to move to D.C. And I had interned for Senator Inhofe from Oklahoma the summer while Chris was deployed. But other than that, I didn't really have much of a connection to D.C. I didn't know that many people, but I knew that it was time for me to go there. And so I packed up my house. Uh, My house in Oklahoma hadn't sold. I didn't have a house in D.C. And I I bought a place in D.C. within a week and, and moved out there. And since I've moved out there, I've really just started going to different events, volunteering and getting involved in things, and um, also writing decision-makers, meeting with them, and 
doors have begun to open, and God's provided incredible opportunities for me. Yeah, the senator has been of great uh, help to you, I understand, as well as well as some of the military leaders, have they not? Absolutely. Senator Enhoff, I can't say enough good things about him. He gave Chris's eulogy. He called me several times, and his staff really took care of me during the whole uh, situation. And it was definitely God putting me in their office. I knew that um, that was definitely uh, no mistake at all. Jane, why do you feel such a need to continue talking about this and to bring attention to this? Uh, I think I know what's behind this, but I, I want to hear you talk about it. There's several different reasons, but it was amazing to me the disconnect between civilians and the military in general, but let alone, you know, a war widow and the general public. Uh, since we've been at war, there's been about 7,000 KIA in a little over 13 years, um, which is killed in action uh, troops. And comparative to other wars, that's a relatively small number. So within about the past 40 years, there's only about 3,500 war widows that husbands have been killed in Iraq or Afghanistan or in the Gulf War. And the disconnect is really great. And the reason why I wanted to start getting out there and give a voice to all of this is because, first of all, those that have given their lives for us don't have a voice unless we give them one. And so many Americans go about their day and live their lives, as they should, but we're in America at peace and a military at war. People don't realize that we're still at war, that there's people fighting and dying for us. Even right now, there's people still in Afghanistan. And the whole message behind the whole thing that I do, really, is that America is the greatest nation in the world because men and women have been willing to fight and die for our freedom. And Americans tend to believe that freedom is free, and they tend to live as such, when in reality, so many people, so many people have fought, bled, and died for us and given up their whole lives and their families just so that we can have freedom. Hmm. Do you find that people are in any way uncomfortable or reticent to talk about what you want to talk about? Absolutely. A lot of people are uncomfortable with it because they're not faced with the realities of war. Even though we've just finished, which the president declared the end of the Afghan war, even though we still have people over there. People are definitely not very connected to the wars, and even though it has been 13 years that we've been in Afghanistan, people are not comfortable with the fact that people might die over there or they might lose limbs or be injured. Jane Horton, our guest today on First Person, will hear more of her story and her mission next on the program. Next time, a young Moldovan pastor talks about caring for orphans at a place called Stella's Voice. And Stella's Voice brings them into a kind of family, a family where they can find the love which they just dreamed about, a family where they can know God and have God as Father. Recorded in Moldova, you'll hear the young pastor Vitaly Belibov next time on First Person. My guest on First Person today is Jane Horton. Jane is a war widow. Her husband, Christopher Horton, was killed in Afghanistan in 2011. Jane, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, I follow you on Facebook and in the news. And again, God has given you incredible opportunities to speak out on behalf of families who are grieving over the men and women who have been killed uh, in these wars recently. And we so much appreciate what you've done. I recall it was probably even the day of Christopher's funeral at Arlington that photos were posted online. And my wife and I 
were on a car trip. We were driving, and I remember very clearly pulling into a rest stop so I could pull out my iPad and look at those photos, and we wept together as we saw those photos. Take me back to that experience at Arlington. Arlington was definitely surreal, but it was about a little over a month and a few days after Chris was killed. And my family and I and Chris's family had been through dignified transfer after dignified transfer. We had been through the funeral. We had been through Westboro protesting the funeral. And we had been through a commercial flight flying Chris's body to Arlington. And it was finally the day when Chris was laid to rest. And it was a very moving day. It was very honorable. There was no better place for Chris to be than Arlington. But one of the most incredible things about that day is I did have a little over a month to plan it, and I had reached out to several military leaders and Senator Inhofe and asked them all to be there. I had asked Admiral Mullen, who was the joint, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff when Chris was killed, but then it switched over in between his death and the, the burial to General Dempsey, who is now the chairman, and I asked General Odierno, who's the chief of the Army, um, to be there. And I had hoped that one of them would be there to honor him, and all three of them ended up coming, which was pretty incredible. And Senator Inhofe gave a eulogy. And uh, the the burial was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And I will tell you, after that day, it felt... It was a tough day. It was a day when I really felt like it was time for me to get up on my feet, and I had to go back home and live life and find my new normal. It was the day when Chris finally stopped moving, and we finally put him to rest. Mm. So it was quite an emotional day for everyone. Mm-hmm. You've been back to Arlington? Yes, I go back uh, once in a while. Yeah, of course, you don't live very far away now, do you? No, I live like 10 minutes away. Mm-hmm. What is it like to go back and to stand there amongst all those graves? It differs every time. Section 60 is one of the most emotional places and powerful places in the country. And I wish that every American could go there. It's where all of the Iraq and Afghanistan vets that are buried at Arlington are, which is about 10% of them. The rest of them, their families opt to have them buried elsewhere. But it's a very moving place. And every time I go back, my emotions differ. I bring back different friends. I bring back family. I bring back my niece and nephew who never got the chance to meet Chris, but will live free because he gave everything for them. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you the hardest time that I have been there was when I turned 27. I was 25 when Chris was killed, and he was just 26. And when I turned 27 and saw that my husband was a young 26-year-old, it was very hard for me to swallow. Oh, I can't imagine. I really can't. This would have happened before Chris's death, but I recall visiting Arlington Cemetery with my family. And as we strolled uh, through the graves there, there was a funeral procession that came to that section. Very moving, the horse-drawn coffin and, and all the rest. Uh, that, that's what you experienced, isn't it? Absolutely. It was very honoring. We had a full full military honors. They had a full military band, a horse and caisson, and uh, a military chaplain and everything to honor him. Hmm. Now, when Chris was serving as, uh, I believe he was in Afghanistan, and again, he was a sniper, uh, he got a letter from a young boy. Tell me that story. How did that all come about? Chris's uh, father is a minister, and he was preaching up in Minnesota, and there was a young boy there that wanted to be a sniper, 
and he had been watching Chris's story and wanted to write him. So he wrote him in Afghanistan, and I remember Chris telling me about the letter. And he told me, he's like, I want to tell this kid like it is. I don't want to give him, you know, the candy-coated story. I'm going to tell him the truth about being a sniper. And so he wrote him back this, this really detailed letter about how being a sniper is not like the movies. It's not being the sneaky assassin or um, the hero as everyone makes it out to be. It's a very long, tedious job, and most of what they do is, is laying around watching the enemy. It's hours and hours of being still and hours and hours of watching and waiting. And it's one of the most dangerous jobs in the military, and it's one of the most hardest uh, positions that you can have as well. And ultimately, being a sniper costs Chris's life. Hmm. Do you know, how, how did the young man receive that letter? Do you know anything more about it? I do. I keep in touch with him, and after Chris was killed, I sent him Chris's sniper patch that oh. he wore. And the young boy actually uh, joined the Army when he was 17, oh. and he graduated basic training last year, and he's on track to become a sniper. Is that and right? Chris's, yeah, Chris's death has not uh, deterred him at all. It's only um, emboldened him to become a sniper. Hmm. I understand that sometime after Chris's death that you actually held his rifle, did you not? I did. That was by far one of the most moving experiences of my life. Chris wanted nothing more than to be a sniper. He lived and breathed and and just absolutely was so passionate about, about that position, and that's why he joined the military, to use his skills as a sharpshooter to become a sniper. What do you think was driving him to, to, to want to be that? Well, he was a professional shooter in the civilian world. He was a sponsored shooter, and he shot in matches and did a lot of different things in that regard. So he knew that he was a good shot, and he wanted to use that ability to take out the enemy because it's one of the most important positions and the most effective positions. And the last thing that he gave me before he deployed was a round out of his sniper rifle. And I remember that he told me that they were issued this brand-new rifle. It was called an XM-2010, and he was one of the first snipers in the whole country to get one. I think there were only five of them. And I knew that that rifle and being a sniper meant so much to him. And I remember him coming home from sniper school and telling me that they showed them videos of what happens to snipers over in Afghanistan. And he told me, he's like, I'm happy. I was happy after they did that because those that weren't supposed to be there left after that because they were afraid. Mm-hmm. Chris really wasn't afraid of anything. And so as soon as he was killed, I asked his friends that were with him, I asked them, where is his sniper rifle? Is it coming back to the state? Is it destroyed? And they told me that it was destroyed because the sniper rifle had been shot about 10 times. Um, and a lot, there were several theories on the way Chris died, but some people had thought that, uh, the insurgents came in, saw Chris with a sniper rifle, and shot at him because he took the most rounds. So a little over a year later, some of his friends were over at my house, and they said that they had drill in the morning for the National Guard, and they said that they were going to be cleaning sniper rifles. And one of them had told me that Chris had come, Chris's rifle had come in a year later. And I will tell you, I probably went white in the face. I could not believe it. And so... I knew that it probably wouldn't be um, the military's first uh, choice to let me see the weapon. So I just went up to drill the next day before they could get rid of it. And um, 
they brought it to me, I guess they had to clean it because it still had blood on it uh, from when Chris held it a year earlier. And when I got to hold that rifle, it was one of the most uh, spiritual, one of the most intense moments of my entire life because that's the rifle that my husband carried. That was the weapon that he chose to serve his country, and that was the reason why I ultimately died. And just to see his rifle covered in bullet holes uh, was just something that I'll never forget. And his best friend who graduated sniper school with him brought it to me, and he's a huge guy, probably about 250 pounds, all muscle, uh, six foot tall. And it was the first time he had seen it as well, and he was shaking and crying when he had brought it to me. Hmm. What a powerful story. And you're helping all of us come to grips with how thankful we need to be for those who have sacrificed their lives in this way, Jane. Uh, Do you network with others who are going through what you're going through? Absolutely. I do a lot of advocacy work in D.C., and I help um, the chief of the Army on his uh, survivor advisory board to come up with policies to improve the casualty process for families. And if families need anything from the military or from the government, if they're waiting on uh, autopsies or personal effects, I'll usually help them with that. But for me, the greatest thing, the greatest uh, way that I can thank those that have given their lives for me is to make sure that their families are taken care of Mm -hmm. and to make sure that people remember them. Yeah, is that the one thing you would leave with us that we should be doing is watching out for these families? I would say more. I would say absolutely. I Don't be afraid of us. A lot of people are afraid to approach us. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. But more than that, I would say just be cognizant that freedom is not free. It doesn't mean that you have to mope around for the rest of your life or live a sad life. It means that you should live the best life possible, and you should take advantage of the freedom that so many have bought with their lives. And when we live in America now that's so safe, regardless of what many think, you know, yes, we had the terrorist attack on 9-11, um, and we had the Boston bombing and et cetera, But whenever we live in a country where we don't have to taste war on our own home front and when many men and women will never have to go and take the fight to the enemy, it's important to remember that we are safe and we live life that we do because the military is out there fighting for us and taking the fight to the enemy. And it's just important to remember that freedom is not free and we should never take it for granted or live as if it is free. Jane, how can we pray for you and, uh, by extension, pray for others as well? How would you advise us to pray? Just pray for continued guidance in my life, that, that God continues to open the doors and shows me the path, as He has done in the three years since my husband's been gone. He hasn't once abandoned me, and I will, I'm very thankful for that. And I will tell you that the reason why I've been so successful and the reason why I've been able to do what I do is because so many men and women, uh, such as yourself and your listeners, have covered me in prayer. Jane Horton, our first-person guest today, who is on a mission of her own to help all of us understand the sacrifice families like hers have experienced and teach us how to respond in love and respect. I've asked Jane to point us to additional resources, and you'll find links to those on our website, firstpersoninterview.com. And if you'd like to leave a message to Jane on our Facebook page, we will make sure she sees those. Just go to facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. First Person is a weekly conversation with followers of Christ who have a unique story to tell. These interviews are all available online in an archive at firstpersoninterview.com. Just click on the Listen button and you'll see the drop-down list of all past programs, firstpersoninterview.com. 
Next week, a conversation recorded in Moldova with a young pastor. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepherd. Join us next time for First Person.